Welcome to the Point Church Teaching Podcast. I'm Corey Ickes, one of the pastors here at Point Church in Fort Liberty. We seek to exalt Jesus and equip the saints through expositional preaching and teaching. I hope you're encouraged and uplifted from this week's teaching. Hey, I want to give a quick testimony to the Lord, something that uh, as your, one of your pastors, all of your pastors have a great burden for uh, celebrating what God is doing And I just want you to hear me in this. We don't celebrate for like the congratulatory pat on the back. Good job, Pastor such and such. Good job for coming up with that program. The point is not to celebrate the form. The point is to celebrate what God is doing, right? So we don't celebrate missional community because it's just the greatest idea in the world. We celebrate missional community and what God's doing to form people as the family of God on mission, right? We don't celebrate DNA groups because of the form, but what men and women, what's happening in men and women's lives as they grow in the gospel and it begins to change them from the inside out, right? That's what we celebrate. Amen? But I just want to, that song reminded me about the Lord will never fail. And I just want to give a personal testimony uh, that this week, so anybody beginning of the month hard? Because it's real hard for my family. Okay? And if this makes you uncomfortable that, like, we're going to go here, we're going here, and I, because I think it's valuable for the family of God to understand the reality of life together, right? That even the guy up at the stage, like, the beginning of the month is tough. And so uh, it, it was Wednesday morning. I was in my office, had my Bible open, and Ashley comes into the room, and uh, she says, hey, we, you know, we should talk. Um, I looked at our account, and it's like, it's not good, right? This was like probably 6.45. And, you know, the day's about to start. Like we, we try to be down in the stairs by 7, making breakfast, making sure the world's problems are solved so we can get out the door to school. <clears throat> so we don't have a whole lot of time to, uh, I mean, there's all the time in the world to freak out and panic. Uh, but by God's grace, not because of, anything but the grace of God, there was this resounding confidence in the Lord, right? And it wasn't because of us. I, I, we, we turned and we read Psalm 121, and it says, um, it's so good. L- let me just read the first few lines. It says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Because in that moment, you're immediately, I'm immediately thinking, Okay, where does my help come to get through this week, to get to the next check? Where does that help come from? And immediately, you know, I mean, you just, you know where your minds go. But the word says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And there was this phenomenal reality that is true about God even in these moments where it does not feel true. And that is that the psalm goes on, it says, He is our keeper. He keeps our life. That in that moment, He holds us, even though in my mind and in my unbelieving heart, there seems to be, there needs to be a more uh, functional Savior in that moment, right? Like, Like, hey, Dad. Right? 
that that seems like the, the, the clearest path forward in my unbelieving heart, and I'm choosing to ignore throwing my eyes to the hill and going, who but the creator of heaven and earth? So he stirred in us, and so we pray and go, Lord, keep us and provide. And I just want to testify, so then the elders are meeting, and Port Kevin and Nancy, they, had a car, they got a car thing going. I mean, we just kind of come dragging in as pastors. And we are sharing our burdens. We're also trying to consider the affairs and the, the leadership of our church. And while, I'm, while we're there, I get a notification, and it was like 1045. It's a Venmo notification from somebody named Andrew. I know like two Andrews, and none of them live here, and none of them are aware of anything that's going on because only Ashley, me, and the Lord knows. And I look, and it's a, a, a gift. I praise the Lord for a gift, right? So I call Andrew, and this is where I want us to see that in our weakness, in, our, in those moments of whether we can move forward in faith without sight or in fear and unbelief, that the Lord needs to sovereignly move in us, but He also will move sovereignly in others. So I call and I'm like, hey man, I mean, so this is a guy that was a part of our church in Vermont. They live in New England. Uh, I call him. We haven't spoken probably since I've left the church uh, and moved back here. And um, I said, hey, and he's like, what's up? And I'm like, you Venmoed me, and I just, like I don't know if that was an, uh, like a different Corey. He's like, no, I meant to. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, yeah. So, uh, and he begins to tell me what the Lord was doing in him and his wife's heart in New Hampshire, at the same time that Ashley and I are sitting in our office praying Psalm 121, going like, who do we look to in this moment? Our God, the one who sits above the circle of the earth, he is our keeper. He's our keeper. And I want to celebrate the goodness of God and the truth of who he is, even when the, the circumstances, like he's doing things even when it doesn't feel like he's doing things. Amen? So in those moments, I want you to pray and, 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 and don't live in fix mode, but live in worship mode, right? In faith, not in fear, amen? Praise the Lord for his provision. And I pray that if you're in a situation like that, you know, here's the thing I've journaled. I journal a lot, and I wrote in the margin of my journal, uh, Ashley came in and just, you know, like, tells me this terrible news, and, it's, you know, it's a boo-hoo. And then I get to go back later and underneath of that, get to journal what God did at this particular time in another family a thousand miles away. So in your moments, I'm encouraging you to not only just fight fear for faith, but also to, to specifically jot it down, make a note of it as you're praying and let the Lord move his strong hand. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you never fail.
And Lord, I pray that like for my unbelieving heart that just so quickly can forget that you never fail. And I can so quickly forget how you show your strong hand and then immediately fall back in fear and unbelief. And I'm praying, God, that you would please move me past that. And I pray that you'd bolster my faith. I pray that you'd bolster the faith of our church and that we would walk in faith, Lord. God, would we be such a needy and desperate people that your truth of who you are and what you do and what you're able to do, that that would be more real to us than dollars and cents in our account. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so week number two of the Story of God series. Last week, we talked about the question, uh, how did it all begin? And that's a question that a whole lot of people have an idea of, but we go exclusively to the Word of God, and we saw in which way things began, through God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, speaking what was nothing into something. And we see His sequential order of creation and how it culminated in the the creation of man and woman as image bearers of God. Fully, uh, in accordance to God's plan, fully provided for and with purpose. With purpose. And so we talked about how God rules and reigns over the earth And that even at creation, like the whole thing about an inventor who holds the patent, that person, that man or woman that holds the patent is the determiner of the purpose and value of the thing, right? And all the more, the God who created heavens and the earth is the determiner as he rules and as he reigns. He's the determiner of the plan, of the function, of the purpose. So last week, our takeaway was that in, in light of Genesis 1 and 2, that we would respond by coming under the rule and reign of God. The understanding that He's got a purpose, He has a plan for us, and that we must yield and come under Him as our King. He's the King of the kingdom. This week, we look at what we call the fall or the rebellion and the, the, the question that we're answering is what went wrong? I, Ashley and I spent some time in New York City on a, on a short-term little tr- uh, evangelism trip, and we were walking, and, and several of the days, we were in and out of different parks and busy street corners, and we were taking surveys, and one of the questions is what went wrong? And you know what? We got all sorts of answers, but I'll tell you one answer that we did not get, and that was everything's fine. Everybody knew. Now, the answers were as wide as this building. But everybody knew that there was something wrong. How do we know? Well, how do you know? Beyond just the Word of God, I mean, who, who gets up excited to look at the news? Right? Who, I mean, just consider the bombardment of bad things. brokenness, evil, 
sickness. I mean, like the flu is like has wiped out a lot of like there is so many of Point family that is at home right now because of one or many that have the flu. Like right now. That is not how things were to be. What went wrong? And you see, because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, this is kind of our main takeaway, we're born rebels in need of rescue. Okay? You say, Corey, how do we get there? Well, you're going to see in Genesis chapter 3 how we get there. And I'm going to read for us. But I want us to take note. So 1 and 2, chapter 1 is this grand overview of the, the six days of creation Each day, God would end it by saying, it is good. On day six, he creates animals and he creates human beings, especially in his image. And he says, it is very good. Day seven, he rests from his work. The God of the universe rests from his work, from his labor. He Sabbaths. But then chapter two is kind of this deep dive into the creation uh, account of man and woman and it all, they, they, they're given all provision, they're giving all purpose, and they're also given boundaries. We talked about that last week. They're given boundaries on what they can eat and the thing that they cannot eat. And then at the end of chapter 2, this is so phenomenal that it begins to talk about how Adam, as he's managing the animals, realizes that there's, like he, there's not a kind like him. And the, the God of the universe puts him to sleep and from his rib creates a partner, a helpmate, a spouse of his kind. And then Adam like, basically sings this incredible poetry to his wife. I mean, dude had lyrics, right? And he's like, this one, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, like this one here, the Lord has provided. And then he goes on and And there at the end, it says, therefore, verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so this was kind of that that final piece of of God's creation was this beautiful imagery of the first marriage. And we see that they, uh, they were provided for. We see that there is a leaving and a cleaving that takes place. There's a new family. There's a, there's a new start. It's very interesting that it says that because Adam and Eve didn't have parents. But for us, when we go into marriage, there is a picture of, of leaving home, leaving the family in order to see a new family formed, which fulfills, be fruitful, and multiply, right? And it says that they were one flesh. They were not roommates. They were not uh, colleagues. They were one. The scriptures talk about not ever tearing to get that thing that was brought together apart. They were one. And then it says that they were naked and were not ashamed. Which is a hard phrase for us to wrap our brains around because nakedness is almost exclusively associated with shame and getting covered up. But see, when all things were good, right, and perfect, when man and woman were in harmony with God, in harmony with another, 
nakedness was the way it was, and they were unashamed. There was nothing to hide. They were fully, I mean, that's like the most intimate thing in the world. So we see kind of this this beautiful picture of marriage kind of wrapping up all that was in God's kingdom. It was good, it was right, and it was perfect. And then we get to chapter 3. So the first thing that we're going to see under chapter 3 is the temptation and the rebellion, okay? In which, essentially, the, the, the lie is whispered that you can be God. So if you want to read with me the first few verses of chapter 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So we go from the end of chapter 2 in which all things are good, right, and perfect to chapter 3, this introduction of a serpent, the deceiver. In John, he's called the father of lies. This passage in chapter 3 describes him as more crafty than any other beast of the field. Who in the world is this serpent? So the Bible shows us elsewhere in Revelation 12 and Job 38 that this one serpent is actually a fallen angel of God in which he rebelled. God cast him out along with many of his uh, henchmen and they, he became Satan and they became demons. The Bible tells us that they, he seeks around uh, prowling, seeking whom he may devour. He is the antithesis of God and wants nothing more than to take what God has purposed and ruin it. Insert creation, insert marriage, insert all that God has done at this point. The devil wants nothing more than to deconstruct it, to tear it apart. So the deceiver, the father of lies, cunning and crafty, this one, the serpent, Satan. But I want us to see in the nature of the temptation. He's crafty. He's, he's, he's a shrewd uh, creature. And he understands that these folks have, I mean, they are living in the presence of God. And so he does not just come out and just boldly defy God, but he comes and begins to sow discord and doubt. How does he do that? The first question in verse 1. Did God actually say? Did he actually say? Causing question of what? Causing question of God's authority? causing question of the goodness of God, that there is actually something, uh, there's something more. At this point in time, Adam and Eve had zero, there was zero category 
for doubt of Father God. There's zero category of consideration that, hey, we need this. Or there's something else out there. Because they in the garden, in all perfection, there was no lack whatsoever. There was no doubt floating around that God was somehow withholding or not good or somehow pulling the fleece over Adam and Eve. So the enemy starts there. Did God actually say? Did he say? I think often the enemy still works in these ways. Consider your own heart when there's temptation at hand. Did God really mean that? Did he really mean this? Like, like if I go here, but not there, like, is that, I mean, when we begin to wordsmith and, and look into interpretation and, and, and start to, to look for the gray areas of God's word, because somehow we can, we can, uh, we can kind of alleviate in our hearts the notion and kind of work around the authority of God. Quite honestly, family, this is what legalism, the big category of legalism in which we talk about rules and, and attendance and, and, and uh, you know, not doing things for the sake of it not appearing that you do other things, right? I, I went to one of those schools. I know about that. We don't, hey, we don't go to the movie theater because guess what? They, somebody might see you and they might assume that you're going to see that really bad movie down the hall. When in fact you're there to see, you know, Lorax. And so we would, we would be, by our rules and our fear, we would choose to actually just not do for fear that somebody might think. It's essentially, you know, it's like, you know, my Bible class was like, hey, boys and girls, never hold hands and you'll never uh, sleep with them outside of marriage. The logic breaks down at some point, but that's the type of, of foolishness that legalism does. And what it does is it avoids, it, it, it totally negates the authority of God and just figures, hey, we'll just build up a bunch of rules, scare everybody real bad so that they will behave, right? But see, none of that existed, but, but what I want us to see is that we have the ability to work around and navigate. It's easier for, in our minds to work around the authority of God than to just come under the authority of God. And the enemy knows that. And he begins to whisper, did God really say he sows seed of doubt? Then he downplays sin. In verse 4, he says, you will surely not die. Like, like I, yeah, I hear that what he said, but surely you're not going to die. Like, it's not that bad. Like, I, I mean, you know, hypothetically, if there was other human beings on this earth, I'm certain that that person would be far worse. They would do far worse things. Surely, it's not that bad. You're not going to die. Our hearts might say, like, is that really true? Like, is, when he says no to these things, when he gives us boundaries in his word, is that like a firm no? Or is that kind of like, a couple steps past, you know, like a maybe. And we begin to, to, to navigate, and honestly, this is where the enemy, when we are willing to navigate, when we're willing to consider that God is not authoritative or that somehow He's withholding from us, excuse me, I thought my Bible was falling, that we 
begin to work around the truth of what God says. So he sows seeds of doubt. He downplays our sin. And then in verse 5, he hints at God keeping something from them, which is now planting this idea that, that, that God in his sovereignty has actually got something that they can't have. Who in here wants what you can't have? It's hardwired in us, and you know why? Because of this right here. My kids could be playing, there could be a toy in the corner of the room that they haven't touched all day. You know where this is going. Next thing you know, my youngest, little Fletch, poor guy, every day is just trying to survive. He finds this one toy that nobody has touched. And next thing you know, the three others, like a pack of wolves, are like, man, that toy right there will make all my dreams come true. Ensues the fight and the chaos and the, you know. God knows. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And here's the thing, family. You will be like God. This is at the root of every bit of our sin. The notion, the desire that we can be, again, back to authority in the place of God. What was the tree that they were forbidden to take of? Knowledge of good and evil. In God's kindness, He says, guys, don't take of this. This is not meant for you. You are not meant to navigate good and evil. You are meant and purposed to live in my good, in my provision, in my plan, and only no good. Guys, we were created for that. We were not created to sit on the throne of our lives as the authority to navigate what we determine as good and what we determine as evil. See, our hearts, maybe there's something better outside of God's plan. Maybe there's just something that if we just take, if we just cheat here, because eating fruit really in the big scheme of things is not that big of a deal. So if we fudge it here, then maybe, just maybe, we will experience something that even God himself hasn't given us. That is at the root of all of our sin. Well, maybe, maybe if I just click here, and watch this thing, then maybe I will experience something that, that was outside of God's design and plan. Maybe if I just cheat and cut these corners here, that I'll experience riches far better than God could ever give me in keeping the rules. If I can just get this one more drink, this one more thing, whatever it is, fill in the blank in order that I can achieve that thing that God might be withholding from me. Because again, surely we won't die. How about this one, if I were God? Anybody ever uttered it? If I were God... Typically, it then comes with some kind of comparison of yourself to somebody that you deem worse than yourself. They would never. If I was judge, if I was president, if I was in charge, this thing would never happen at the root of it. If I was just God, 
And if I was just in charge, then I could achieve and receive or dole out something outside of God's provision in our life. And that is the temptation. And so it goes on, and it tells us beyond this, uh, the temptation is the rebellion. So at verse 6, Eve and Adam, they're, they're hearing these lies, and now they're beginning. They have this entire category of doubt that has never existed before, these questions. And then they look at the food in verse 6, and it says, And when they, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and that it was desired to make one wise family. Do you understand that this combination of lies and questions challenging the authority of God paired with our own senses, our own bodily God-given senses, combines with this thing in which it's like dry in the mouth, flush in the cheeks, I just gotta have. In verse 7, she took and she ate. And then she gave some, verse 6, excuse me, she, she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. You see, through the temptation, the whole thrust of that thing is you can be like God. And right now, because we are rebels and sinners as Adam and Eve become here in a second, in our heart of hearts, at every decision point, at every temptation, it's you can be like God. You can determine that this thing, though over here people say it's no good, but I can determine that it's actually good for me if it makes me feel good or if it improves my self-worth or if it takes off the edge, or if it somehow buries the hurt and the pain, that it's okay. And so they take and they eat. And then it moves us to point number two, which is the fallout or the unraveling of creation. The crunch of that fruit was like a shot heard round the cosmos. And the unraveling of creation. So we see six days of God raveling things from nothing to something, from chaos to order, from darkness to light, in intricate, I mean, phenomenal, complex ecosystems and galaxies and, I mean, tides and, and, and moon phases. I mean, we're talking crazy stuff in six days. And then in one bite, this creation begun, begins to unfurl, like if somebody's ever had a baseball that the dog got a hold of, right? And that one string, you pluck it, And what happens, but the whole thing ends up being a pile of yarn. This one act of disobedience sets off a cosmic chain of events. It goes on and it tells us in verse 7, their eyes are both open. So in chapter 2, when all things are good, right, and perfect, their eyes are open, they're naked, and they're unashamed. Now their eyes are opened And they realize that they're naked and they sew fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God who they have heard since they have existed. And now it says that they're afraid 
And they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. You see, this, this cosmic shot, it, it goes out across and all of a sudden, uh, the thing, like their creation, they're still, their eyes are open just like they were prior, but now there's an awareness of their sin and their nakedness. And immediately, their, their nakedness is attached to their disobedience. And immediately, what do they do? They pick up sewing. And what do they do? But they stitch loincloths to cover themselves. Let me ask you, what kind of loincloths do you stitch together to cover your sin? We all engage in this activity. It's called self-righteousness. And it's what we do. It's how we present ourselves. It's how we cover up. It's how we uh, walk. It's how we talk in order to cover up our shame. They put together fig leaves, and then they hide. So in, in a case where they've never had to hide before, in a case where they've never, ever had to consider where, like, God's coming, we should hide. All of a sudden, in their minds, like, I mean, it's irrational based on their past. Like, based on their existence prior to this, they're thinking of covering themselves, they're thinking of their, their shame, they're thinking of hiding from God is absolutely irrational to them. In this point in human history. Now we look at it and go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because we're living that constantly. But in this moment, this is the furthest thing from rational that they've ever experienced. But this is the, this is the horrific effect of sin. Not just sins, not just doing bad stuff. But like the sin that is at the heart of our hearts. That is rebellion against God. This was not circumstantial. This was not, hey, I've just been duped. But this is temptation paired with desire that has culminated in choosing to find some good apart from God. In which we were never created to do. And they hide. And God says, hey, who, 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 who told you that you're naked? Did you eat of the tree? Did you eat of the tree? So he confronts them. What happens? But the blame game. Anybody here familiar with the blame game? Yep, yep. Weekly contestant right here. But Lord, it's that little blonde-haired daughter of mine. If she would just go to bed when I tell her to go to bed and not come out of the room 37,000 times to tell mama something about the next day, like I wouldn't get frustrated and provoke my poor child to wrath. Real, that's real. He looks at Adam, the head of the home. He looks at Adam and says, Adam, what did you do? And he said, Lord, it's this woman. This woman who I was just singing her praises and writing phenomenal poetry about. It's this woman that you've given me. She caused me to sin. And then he turns to Eve. But she's, And what does she do? She doesn't own it. She doesn't she, it's that serpent. He was so tricky. He was so cunning. His words, I mean, it just almost made it feel like it wasn't even breaking the rules. Like it wasn't, uh, that he almost made it feel like it just wasn't full on rebellion against the God of the universe. He made me do it. 
he made me do it. And then it goes on as they're talking and the Lord begins to pronounce curses. So this whole, this, this cosmic shot heard around the world at the crunch of that fruit. When sin has entered the world, uh, one theologian says that our hearts immediately turn from being Godward. Look, think about this. It, it, he talks about how our hearts turned from being Godward, that our hearts literally, there was a Godward thrust in our heart of hearts as his creation. And that when sin came in, that turned inward. See, when our heart of hearts is outward, doing what we were made to do, worship God. But what happens when it turns inward? Hey, we're still worshipers. Who do we worship when it turns inward? We could just be God. Family, this was not circumstantial. This is all out rebellion. And I need you to understand that we, we are not just good people with a little bit of sin. This is going to sound like a real downer, but I need you to understand this shapes our theology. Studying Genesis shapes our theology. We are not just you know, good folks with some bad habits, but we are all out rebels waging war against the one true God. That's who we are. And we are in desperate, desperate need of rescue. But Corey, Mama always said I was, I was, people are mostly good. Yeah, people can do good things. But family, hear me. According to the word of God, what is authoritative, what should rule and reign over our hearts, we are all absolute rebels fighting against the one true God. So God begins to pronounce curses because, see, remember, God is a God of light. He can't dwell in darkness. We see that throughout all of creation where there was darkness and the word, Jesus, comes and he, what does he do? But he shines light, the light of the world. And he goes on in the prophecy uh, in which the one, the Messiah, will come down and he will bring light to the darkness. And then when the baby, the Lord Jesus is being held and the prophet has, says, hey, I can, go, I can go home to be with the Lord because the light has come down. The God of the universe cannot be in darkness. He is a holy God. He's a just God. All that he does is called for in accordance to his word, in accordance to his purposes, as creator, and he looks and he begins to dole out curses, going, the, I cannot tolerate this, this cannot go unpunished. Just like anybody in this room as a parent who has boundaries and who has a system of discipline and punishment for rebellion and disobedience of our children, we look and go, that's right, because we would do a disservice to our children if we allowed them to just free fall in rebellion. Just the same. A loving father is going to, he is going to discipline. And in this case, there is curses that he speaks to creation. And he starts with the serpent. And he says, because you've done this, you're most cursed above all livestock and all the beasts of the fields. On the belly you shall go. You will eat dust and you will crawl in the dust. And there will be enmity between you and Eve. And he, then he turns to Eve and he says to the woman, he said, I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Amen's in the room. I've, I've witnessed it. I've never done it, but I've witnessed it. And it seems, it, it's more than seem. It ain't, it's rough, mamas. It's a result of the fall. 
pain and childbearing. Your desire for it will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And there's this picture of, of, of that even the marriage itself is compromised. And that, that in Genesis 2, we see this good, right, and perfect perfection, this harmony. And then it's saying to Eve, like there is going to be desires that will not be fulfilled. There's going to be strife between you and the mister. I think we can all testify to that in some way, shape, or form. That this marriage thing that we call perfect according to God's plan is awful difficult when it's made up of two sinners. And then he turns to the man and he says, Because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain you shall eat. In all your days in your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till return of the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust. Family, all that was good has been broken. It's been broken. It's been an absolute, total fallout. And I just want you to consider, in your own lives, the result of your own sin. Consider the cosmic devastation in these two human beings where they're cast out of the garden. Imagine they're walking away from the garden in which God has put cherubs to protect and keep anybody out. And they're walking away at the devastation of like day one of the rest of their life in sin and brokenness. Must have been the most depressing day ever. But consider your own heart. Consider the sin and how often the combination of the lies of the enemy and then the desires of your own heart, what, what seems like is going to be a moment of ecstasy or a choice of pure bliss results in a lifetime of regret and shame and emptiness. What you thought you'd hit the jackpot is utter Emptiness. And that is the fall. That's the fall. And that, that reality needs to sit on us. Because I don't know about you, but as I was looking over this this morning, there was just this overwhelming burden of hopelessness. As you read this account, and you consider the ramifications, not just for them, but their children, right? Immediately in chapter 4, one son kills another. Immediately in chapter 6, God is so, he's so disappointed, he's so disgusted at the evil in the world that he sends a flood to clear the cash. With the exception of one promised family. So you think, okay, well they got to they gotta restart. Chapter 11, they're like, hey, we can, be, we can be up with God. If we build a tower tall enough, we can actually be God. And what do you see but the same heart condition that they inherited from Adam and Eve in just a new context, in a new situation. And generation after generation, sin was passed down generation to generation. And the constant was the people did what the judges say was right in their own eyes. They were becoming the determiner of what was good and what was evil. Our world has completely negated capital T truth in order that you can be the determiner of your truth 
And you can determine what is real, what is good, and what is evil. And I'm telling you, according to Romans 1, we are doomed. We're doomed. That there is, that, that, that we have exchanged the truth for a lie, and it started in Genesis 3. And so the, the resounding question in the heart of every human being, and I hope in the, in, I know, even if you can't utter it yet, in your heart, is, is there any hope? If you give me two seconds, two minutes. The end of chapter 3, verse 15, we see that there's a promise. There's a promise of rescue in which when God is pronouncing curses on Satan himself, he says there's going to be enmity between you and Eve and that your offspring, Eve, will crush the head of the serpent and he will bruise that offspring's heel. Anybody seen uh, the Passion of the Christ? Do you recall the scene in which Jesus is in the garden? He's praying and what comes slithering by and as he stands up, what does he do? But he stamps on the head of the serpent. See, that is the first gospel, the proto-evangelium that is one day, one day, there will be the chosen one of Eve's offspring, a particular one who will crush Satan. And we know that throughout the Old Testament it was prophesied, there was more clarity given, there's more specifics, there's shadows, there's illustrations of what that's going to look like all throughout the prophets, all throughout the Old Testament, then it's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus on the cross in which he stomps on the head of Satan. And, but I, I need you to understand that there's more than just uh, there's this first gospel, but also for God's provision for Adam and Eve. Because it says they will surely die, but did they die in that moment? No, not physically. They certainly died spiritually and were destined for rescue. And what does God do? So in verse, in verse 20, it says that the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living things. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And then he removes them out of the garden. At this point, they're only eating plants. No animals have been killed. Nothing's been killed. No blood has been shed. But what has to transpire for clothing of animal skins? Sacrifice. Death. Blood must be shed. There must be the removal of self-righteous fig leaf coverings in order for them to be covered appropriately to still walk in God's way. What happens, this gets teased out throughout the rest of the Old Testament through the sacrificial system and the whole thing, even though it's so complicated and you read it and it's exhausting and you're like, why is this in here? And it all foretells of a time in which the one, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who will take away the sins. Behold, the Lamb of God. Because the blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient to remove our sins, but the blood of the one. So, in which Israel, when they're in Egypt and they're hiding behind the door and they've got the blood of the Lamb plastered and that death angel comes across and they are spared because they're hidden, they're covered by the blood. See, that's a picture of what's to come in which Jesus, when He's on the cross and He spills His blood, that we are then covered by His blood, that we are hidden in Christ. We're cloaked in His righteousness when we go down to the grave with Him, we're resurrected in new life as new creations filled with His Spirit. 
family, there is good news for rescue. Person in the room, if you have yet to experience that, or if the weight of your sin is sitting so heavy that you feel like you can't breathe, I'm here to tell you there is good news. And that is the God that was so loving to send them out of the garden was so loving to crush his son, to give you a covering in which you can be reconciled and walk and live in his way. So I would like everybody to bow your heads. Um, As we close, we're going to take communion. And we're going to take communion the rest of the series, so every week, because one of the greatest ways that we respond is by considering the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. And so, as you close, you can, you can get up and grab your, your elements if you don't already have them. But family, the question I have is, have you been rescued? Have, have you been covered through the blood of Christ? Have you repented of your sins and believed on Christ? Or are you still walking through life Stitching together your fig leaves, trying to present yourself as better than you are. Presenting yourself as alive when really you're dead in your sin. Or have you actually come to a place in which you have repented, in which you said, God, I realize that I have felt like I am way outside of your plan. My sin is widespread and it's deep and I need you to forgive me. So, For people in the room, some need to just actually repent of your sin for the first time and ask Jesus to save you. For believers in the room, I'm I'm curious about this. Though spiritually you have been made alive in Jesus, functionally do you still fall prey to enemies' tactics and temptations? Paired with your bodily desires, your God-given desires, that you attempt to usurp his authority and do things outside of his will and his plan. So I'd ask you all to bow your heads and pray. And if the Lord's convicting you of something, the Bible simply says to repent, which means to turn, acknowledge that it's broken, acknowledge it's busted, and move on and ask him for forgiveness. So as you do that, we'll take the elements in one second. When Jesus was with his disciples before he went to the cross, he began, he he instituted this supper as an act of remembrance, but it's an act of preaching to our heart. But he's going to the cross to fulfill this. He's going to the cross to shed his blood for the remission of our sins. He's going to the cross to break his body in place of ours. And so, when he's with them, he tells them, hey, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body that's broken 
while we were yet still sinners. So imagine the weight of our sins sitting on our shoulders, the weight of Adam and Eve's sins sitting on their shoulders, the, the hopelessness, the absolute, the, the, the total chaos and darkness that's around us because of our sin. And it was in that moment at the right time that Christ died for sinners. Do you hear me? Nothing that you did earned that. While you were his enemy, he died for you. That's the most scandalous, shouldn't be allowed type of act that's ever happened. It was a scandal. It's the reckless love of God that pursued you when you were absolutely, completely wayward, rebellious, God-hating. He died for you. And by that body was broken. Family, let's take that bread and eat. Lord, we praise you for your body that was broken when we were rebels, when we were your enemies. God, when we were wagging our fists in your face, Lord, you crushed your son in our place. And Jesus says, just likewise, here is the cup that is my blood. It's the blood of the new covenant. It's the blood in which I am going to seal you with. I'm going to cover you with. It's the blood that was spilt for the likes of Peter who denied the Lord Jesus. It's the blood that was spilt for the Roman centurions at the cross who were whipping and beating. He spilt his blood for sinners like them and like us. So family, let's take the cup and remember. Father, we praise you for your the blood of Christ that was spilt. Lord, we, you're so good. I pray, God, that you would form us by your word. Thank you for it. It's so good. It's so authoritative. And I pray, Lord, that we would come under it. And if there's anybody in the room that has questions or, or is still choosing to, to walk in their rebellion, God, I pray that you would in your kindness, that you just draw them to yourself. Lord, that like beyond their even ability to fight you, Lord, that you would just bring them to you, that they would see your kindness and they would see your love and they'd see your incredible salvation and rescue that you made a way through your son. We thank you for it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, because of time, I'm going to ask the band to just hang tight. I wouldn't normally do this, but... Uh, time has gotten away. And so, as we close, there's a couple things I just want to announce. I'm sorry, I really would like us to sing, but I, I want to be mindful of our, our volunteers and you all. Um, so, praise the Lord. I think Josh already mentioned it. We had 15 baskets in need for Ben Haven School, and those baskets were covered. They were like, they were grabbed up last Sunday. I mean, as soon as it was announced. Thank you. There's some that still wanted to do some things, so we're going to actually, we're going to, to create, a, we have some college kids in our church, uh, and so we're going to take some folks that are they're willing to actually put together some care packages as, as finals are kind of approaching, and so what we're going to do on the 19th, so next Sunday, next Sunday is a big Sunday, 
Uh, but the evening of the 19th, we're going to come and we're going to gather here for a little Friendsgiving kind of dessert thing. Those details are coming, but we're going to pack those baskets, all right? We're going to pray over them, but we'll also pack those, basket, those boxes of care packages for our students, our college students. So please mark that on your calendar. Be here for that. Next Sunday, we have one of our church planning missionaries that we support who's planning at Seymour Johnson in Goldsboro, another military community church. Um, that, that pastor will be here uh, to share. And so come, be, come meet Jamal. I mean, these folks are, are gold, are gold. And they, um, they need our support, and we want to bring them, prioritize them, love on them, okay? Thank you all for being here. Thank you. I know so many were battling sickness. There's a lot of questions on whether you would be here or not. I'm glad you're here. Let's pray that the truth of God's word would continue to move in our hearts as we leave this place. Amen? That wouldn't just be, that wouldn't just be head knowledge, that it would transform our hearts and that it would change our hands and obey. Amen? Father, thank you for who you are. We praise your good name. You're worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. God, worthy are you who saw fit to crush your Son so that we could be covered and be made right. Worthy are you. And, and every point in which we were due your full wrath, your justified wrath because of our sin, Lord, you in your long-suffering, Lord, in your kindness, you sent your Son, and we praise you for that. And I pray that we be a people that are absolutely radically marked by the life change that Jesus brings us. And Lord, that we'd leave this place today uh, shaped by that, that we would freshly come under the authority of God's Word, that we would be zealous to battle the temptations of the enemy that wants to, to, to steer us away and wants to, to, to destroy us, wants to pluck us away and paralyze us in fear and in shame. And Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus, God, that you'd bolster our faith. Lord, that you'd bolster our discernment to see the attacks of the enemy. And God, that we would move forward in faith and assurance that Jesus is our King. Lord, would you change us as a corporate people? We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's teaching. If you'd like to learn more about how you can be a part of what God is doing here at Point, connect with us at www.pointchurch.live. Thank you.